thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is That Paleo Show with your hosts, Stephanie Wozelik, Dr. Yana James, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Stephanie Wozlick. And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. Unfortunately, we're missing Yana again today, and let me tell you, she is just devastated because mm-hmm. we have the coolest interview today. We have none other than Dr. Lauren Cordain on the show, who obviously is the man behind the modern paleo movement and definitely one of our inspirations. Um, you know, everyone probably knows him from the book, The Paleo Diet, which was uh, the the founding book of the movement. And still to this day, probably if, if bookstores have a book, it's that one on paleo. So it's pretty exciting. Um, you might also recognize him from some other books like The Paleo Diet for Athletes or maybe The Dietary Cure for Acne. But another one of his major contributions to the paleo movement has just been over a 100 scientific um papers peer edited on the on the topic of paleo so he's made a massive contribution so you guys have come here or are listening to lauren not me talk so welcome to the show dr lauren hey stephanie thank you for a wonderful introduction like that and brett i'm uh, very honored and happy to be on them and uh, uh, hopefully we can get some good information out to your listeners awesome we have you on lauren so we're excited so we've been doing this show for almost a year now, and our listeners have a pretty good idea about what paleo is all about. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe just give us some context um, about how you got started into paleo in the beginning. Like, that was ages ago, right? Yeah, you know what? Uh, my wife, uh, Lori, and I have been eating in this manner since uh, we got married in 1990, and it was right about that time. Uh, that we actually started to adopt uh, this this whole idea, and the reason that we did so, uh, I was I was 39 and, and Lori was actually 32, and the reason we did so is that uh, uh, three years earlier in 1987, I had read uh, Dr. Boyd Eaton's uh, now a famous paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that appeared in 1985 called Paleolithic Nutrition. And so uh, that article uh, really inspired me, and uh, and that's kind of how I came upon uh, this whole idea. And I eventually ended up um, calling Boyd Eaton at uh, Emory University in Atlanta, uh, and uh, we spoke for a long time on the telephone at the very first conversation He ended up coming up to Colorado State University, and uh, we ended up uh, doing scientific papers together and lecturing together, and and that's really kind of how the whole thing uh, started uh, almost, uh, what, 23, 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, Lauren, how do people react? I mean, even now, when you start talking about the paleo diet, you know, we have, you know, dietitians and, and doctors and people in the community who are reacting to it saying, oh my God, this is, you know, this is crazy. This is so different to what we've been taught. This is so different to the food pyramid, all of those sort of things. I mean, if that's how people are reacting now, like how are they reacting 23 or 24 years ago? <laughs> well, Brett, a very good question. And um, at that time, you know, when we, we first started doing this, it actually... 
was not a worldwide movement. Uh, the internet didn't exist. Blogs didn't exist. And even interviews on Skype like this uh, didn't exist. So it was a very small community of people. And uh, we corresponded uh, not so much. The internet uh, was just barely running in those days. Uh, but we corresponded through letters and telephone calls and, and correspondence um, uh, that was, you know, with probably, I want to say probably less than 50 people that were involved in this, uh, in its very beginnings. So, um, you know, the, the media and the mainstream nutritional community, uh, as a whole really weren't very much interested. Boyd and I published in the, the scientific literature and I mean, who reads obscure scientific articles at the time? <laughs> at the time before there was, you know, the internet or PDFs or any of that. So, um, I don't think that, uh, you know, the mainstream nutritional community really, uh, was much aware of it at the, at the time. So, um, that's anthropologists were, you know, a select group of physicians and nutritionists were. And so we were a very, very small community. So I, I didn't see really any backlash at, at the time. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's so much easier now, isn't it? Like, you know, in the you know, post, I guess, internet era that, uh, you know, to find those journal articles and to be able to read stuff online. But back then, as you said, like the whole, you know, you had to go to the library and get your little card and go find your research. Like it was, it was an involved process back then, wasn't it? Yeah, Brett, that's a, that's a very good point. And, um, so, uh, you know, we, we do face those issues now. Here we are. We're not, in, you know, 1987 or 1991 or whenever, we are in 2013. And as uh, both you and Stephanie realize is that paleo has become viral worldwide uh, in mm. Canada, the United States, Europe, uh, Australia, Australia, there are uh, New Zealand, <laughs> there are millions, millions of followers. And so I, I am uh, absolutely flattered and, and grateful that it has gotten to this point. Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. And, um, and it's interesting over time how that's all evolved because I, what I didn't mention in my introduction was your newest book, The Paleo Answer as well. So I know even, you know, everyone now has their own kind of opinion of it, but since the very beginning, how has, how has paleo changed for you over the last 25 years? Um, you know, you, you come to, to live with it. It's, uh, it's always been my passion. It's a concept, as I mentioned from the very beginning, when I read Boyd Eaton's first paper, um, I just thought that it made incredibly good sense. And um, I've always been interested in diet and health and fitness and well-being throughout my life and my career. I'm 63 now, but there was a time I was a young man. <laughs> and uh, I... Uh, I worked as a lifeguard on a beach uh, in uh, at Lake Tahoe, uh, which is one of the largest freshwater lakes in North America. And I, I worked as a lifeguard for 20 years on that beach. And so, um, and before that, I, I was an intercollegiate athlete at the University of Nevada Reno. And so, I was I was always interested in in how um, diet 
and exercise could impact fitness and health and well-being. And so, uh, you know, once I, I left the university, I had another 20 years uh, from the time I was in my early 20s until I was almost 40, uh, in which I interacted with people that had the same feelings as I do. And I know in Australia you have a, a very large lifeguard corps, and when you're involved with people that are in the outdoors, uh, sunshine and health and fitness, uh, you know, diet is a, a, a normal topic. So, uh, is what you're saying that you really started thinking about diet because you wanted to look good and pick up girls on the beach? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that that was you know that always that that came that happened anyway. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's that was part of it. You know, it's kind of the. <laughs> The outdoor, uh, healthy lifestyle that uh, has existed here in the United States and in Australia, and, and Stephanie, I'm sure in, in Canada as well, is that. No, we wear snowsuits. Yeah, snowsuits. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Tahoe is a, is a big ski area too. So, uh, the people that I hung out with in the summertime uh, were lifeguards in the summer and ski bums in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lauren, you know, Stephanie's talking about the changes from, I guess, the paleo diet through to the paleo answer. And one of the things that always comes up is, I guess, the changes in, in your recommendations around saturated fat. I mean, I know we interviewed uh, Sally Fallon recently on the Wellness Guys show, and, and she was sort of, you know, criticizing the paleo movement, saying it was all about lean meats and not enough fat and those sort of things. And it, it seems like that's a bit of an outdated view of paleo. I mean, where do you stand now in terms of saturated fats and how they fit into the paleo diet? Yeah, you know, uh, Brett, I think that's a very good point. And, and, you know, I'm not calling myself a good scientist, but uh, the way I, I've been involved in, in academia, and I'm a, a scientist at a Division One research institution, so not only was I a lifeguard on a beach, um, I've been involved in academia for uh, 33 years now. And so what I do for a living is I write scientific papers, apply for grants, and and uh, I'm involved with other scientists worldwide. And, uh, you know, I, I I don't believe that Sally Fallon has ever published a scientific paper in her entire career. If she has, I'm unaware of it. So we put our, <laughs> we put our work up against um, with a process called peer review uh, in which we submit uh, manuscripts to... Uh, scientific articles and, and journals and so the, the information that I provide uh, in my popular books comes from the science that we have we've published and in an earlier day when I first started out 15-20 uh, years ago I believed the dogma of the time that uh, saturated fats uh were an important fat risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And, of course, uh, you know, <clears throat> hopefully if you're a good scientist, as the data changes, uh, you should uh, stay with the best available data. The data should always speak for itself. And so in 2005 or six, so now we're, what, seven, eight years down the road, I wrote a scientific paper and it was published in a, a book chapter. You can get it at my website, thepaleodiet.com, in which we analyzed the saturated fat in hunter-gatherer diets. And it turns out um, that it was significantly higher than recommendations 
that we see in the Western world. So in the Western world, the, the notion is, is that you should keep saturated fats below 10% of energy. And there's absolutely no way that we saw that in hunter, when we modeled hunter-gatherer diets. So it was significantly higher between uh, 15 to 20%. Um, and so based on that information in that scientific paper, uh, I, you know, as I mentioned, seven, eight, nine years ago, we reversed our, our perspective and in the popular press, particularly in the Paleo Answer, which was published in 2012, I have a, an entire chapter, uh, showing that, uh, dietary saturated fats probably have a, limited effect in terms of promoting cardiovascular disease. Unfortunately, Ms. Fallon has, has neither read our scientific papers nor uh, our paper in the, or our chapter in the book. Yeah, and I tell you, that chapter is actually a great read. Like, I, I loved that book, and it was, uh, yeah, it was a real eye-opener for me just to see that follow-up and sort of take it to the next level. And I know one of the things you spoke about in that chapter as well was the sort of interplay between the saturated fats and the, the grains and sort of carbs in the diet as well. Can you go into that for our listeners and how that sort of plays out in our diets? Yeah, I think that um, one of the, the difficult parts of untangling the saturated fat story uh, you know, we can go back to Ansel Keys and the, the seven countries studies back in the 60s, which is one of the, I think, one of the seminal uh, studies that got this notion going, is that they really didn't have the statistical finesse to be able to uh, statistically uh, get at these confounders. And so at the time, it wasn't recognized that, um, high glycemic load carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates, grains and sugars and so forth, uh, have a, uh, a very powerful ability to also elevate plasma saturated fats. As a matter of fact, if you eat refined sugars and refined carbohydrates, um, there's a specific type of saturated fats called palmitic acid. And uh, palmitic acid, we know, down-regulates the LDL receptor. And so at the time, it was unknown that sugars and refined carbohydrates could have a similar effect on blood saturated fat content. And so if you combine um, dietary saturated fats along with dietary refined carbohydrates, uh, it makes for a, a perfect storm in terms of producing cardiovascular disease. And really that's that's what we saw in the Western world in the in the sixties, seventies, eighties and beyond is that people that develop cardiovascular disease were eating unlimited saturated fats along with um, high glycemic load, refined sugars and carbohydrates. And so that made it a very difficult task for epidemiologists and scientists to kind of unravel the story. And now, uh, you know, here we are in, in the 21st century, and, and the best available evidence tells us that if you are not eating high glycemic load carbohydrates and you're eating saturated fats, uh, the risk for cardiovascular disease seems to be minimal. 
Mm-hmm. And is the type of saturated fat uh, included in those studies? Like, are they no, good that, quality, like grass-fed meat? <laughs> no, that's the problem. Is that uh, you know at the time, uh, all saturated fats were lumped together, and mm-hmm. um, you have to get into uh, lipid chemistry to understand how this works. But uh, um, there's four basic types of saturated fats in our diet. Uh, the first is lauric acid, which has a carbon length of uh, is 12 carbons in length. The next is meristic acid, which is 14 carbons in length. Uh, the, the most potent is a, a, a fatty acid called palmitic acid, which is 16 carbons in length. And the next is stearic acid, which is 18 carbons in length. We know that stearic acid, a saturated fatty acid, actually lowers blood cholesterol. We don't get a whole lot of... Um, of uh, 12 zero or um, lauric acid in our diet unless we eat coconut fat. Uh, that's one of the only sources of lauric acid. Meristic acid is found in very, very low concentrations. And so if you look at the fat, and this is research from our, our, our group, is if you look at the saturated fats in wild animals, it's equally split um, in the triglyceride portion between stearic acid um and palmitic. So, uh, actually, wild, the fat from wild animals and, and grass-produced animals uh, contains fairly low concentrations of palmitic acids and high concentrations of stearic acid. So, it, it's a, it, it's not as simple as it was, uh, you know, portrayed to be to the public in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And, mm-hmm. and, and so what is playing out now is that you know, it, it kind of depends on what the fat source is, where you're getting it, and, and what you're eating along with it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see over time how that kind of plays out in the in the scientific literature because I know the paleo crew is all really holding out for some really good studies on on um, better like grass fed sources of saturated fat. But that kind of leads me into my next question because what I absolutely love about what you do in and about paleo in general is that so much of it is in fact based on all of these peer reviewed scientific studies. And that's what, what, you know, for me really um, solidifies it as a lifestyle as opposed to, you know, you've heard of all the fad diets out there that are, that are really not based on, on scientific evidence. So how do you, how do you explain to people the difference between that paleo, I know we call it the paleo diet and diet kind of implies fad diet maybe, but how do you explain it to people as really um, a healthy lifestyle choice as opposed to a diet? Well, Stephanie, I think that's an excellent point. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of unfortunate that we We've thrown a label or a handle at this that is now referred to as as paleo because what it really is is it's uh, a way a lifelong or a lifestyle way of eating uh, to uh, optimize health and well being and that really was all my intent from the very beginning. It really has nothing to do with quote unquote a diet. We think about diets in which. People go on temporarily to lose weight or do this or that or whatever, and they go back to what they're doing. What uh, my intent was when I wrote the first book, and it, it kind of got lost in the, I don't know, in the, the media and the popular press, was that this was simply a life's long way of eating to 
uh, maximize health and well-being. And to be honest with you, uh, I, I didn't invent this, uh, and neither did any single scientist, neither did Boyd Eaton or anybody else. What we did is we simply uncovered what was pre-existing. So humans are fallible. Humans uh, make mistakes, and anytime a human uh, has a hand in telling us what we should or should not eat, invariably it's going to be incorrect, whether it's a governmental <laughs> agency or, you know, a, a charismatic individual that's got a, a popular book. Uh, what we did is we, we uncovered what was pre-existing. We went around the world from the present to the past to two and a half million years ago, and we uh, kind of determined what the range of diets were uh, that humans and our ancestors that uh, we can call hominids were eating. And uh, if you do what's called a bell-shaped curve with a mean and a standard deviation, <clears throat> there was a range of diets and all nutrients were uh, fell basically within that mean standard deviation. So we have a nice bell-shaped curve. And if we fast forward to the Industrial Revolution, when we started eating processed and junk food and <coughs> cereals became available to everybody, then what we find is the bell-shaped curve shifts. And what we're doing is we're eating um, foods that have nutritional characteristics that aren't just one or two standard deviations or three beyond the mean. Uh, if you eat the Western diet, you're five and six and seven standard deviations beyond the mean in terms of refined sugars and, and low fiber and, and you name the nutrient. So that's, pardon me, really what we, uh, what we accomplished in the last 20 years. And Lauren, that kind of brings me to the next question I wanted to ask you, which was actually around the name, the Paleo Diet. I mean, obviously that's probably pretty, uh, you know, special to you because it was the name of your book, which was a, an incredibly popular book. But there've been a lot of people suggesting that maybe that's not the best name for it going forwards. That maybe we should be talking about, you know, Paleolithic nutrition as Eaton did, or you know, evolutionary nutrition, or or you know, some sort of name that I guess reflects the fact that. Uh, that there is no one paleo diet and also that it's that it's a constantly evolving science that as you said you know between your two books well several of your books has changed over time and and it really is evolving as the science evolves as well you know what are your thoughts on that like in terms of what it's called do you think it matters do you think it should be updated what are your thoughts well you know uh brad i i think that's a very good point and um you know the handle that you put on a concept uh sometime sometimes defines the concept uh, in a good way or in a bad way. And, you know, on a personal level, I, I've been involved since ground zero on this <laughs> because it was such a, you know, it was such a few amount of people that were, uh, you know, in the middle of this, including Boyd Eaton and Stefan Lindeberg and others. And so Boyd, uh, his original paper in 1985 in the New England Journal of Medicine he uh, coined it Paleolithic Nutrition. And so, you know, I, I kind of deferred to Boyd, who I consider a mentor. I thought, well, that actually is a, is a pretty good idea. Uh, Paleolithic, paleo means old, lithic means stone. So Paleolithic refers to the old Stone Age. And uh, generally, the old Stone Age uh, is the period that... Um, 
existed when humans or hominins first produced stone tools roughly two and a half million years ago until uh, 10,000 years ago. So uh, during that old Stone Age period, we all uh, existed as hunter-gatherers. And so I think that was Boyd's original idea when he uh, coined the term paleolithic nutrition was uh, the notion that what we should be eating are the foods that we have, that our genomes have been adapted to over this two and a half million year period. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it may not be at the, the best of terms, but uh, it kind of gets at it. And I guess like it or not, that's where we are in 2013 because uh, the movement in all the books and the diet books, and I think Mark Sisson is probably the only guy that challenged it with the word primal. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the notion of eating in a manner similar to what our ancestors ate uh, is now known as paleo, like it or not. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and you know what? You kind of face it at some point. Now at least it's getting recognized, and if people are criticizing it, at least they're learning a little bit about it. So I, you know, if it if it has to be popularized like that, it's. You know, it's not the end of the world. But um, one of our one of the questions that our listeners wanted to know was, I mean, we always talk about paleo being what we lived on as hunter gatherers. So essentially, it was a lifelong quote unquote diet. But now there's so much criticism that paleo really isn't sustainable over your whole life, and maybe um, people can't do it forever. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I, mean, I think the first thing, you know, I, I've seen some of the the popular podcasts, this, that, and whatever, and the, the people that are highly critical of the notion is, is first off, I think uh, Boyd Eaton and myself and, and other people, uh, Rob Wolf and, and even Mark Sisson that have been involved with it from the get-go, um, the idea was never to, to precisely emulate or or mimic the diet of hunter-gatherers. That's that's absolutely impossible. I don't know that anywhere in the, the world uh, where people have the ability to eat um, wild game meat day in and day out and to gather wild plant foods. Uh, it, it's, it's virtually impossible to do that. Uh, so westernized people, Europeans, Australians, Canadians, people from the United States, what we have suggested is that we should eat and mimic the food groups that our ancestors uh, ate with common everyday foods that you can get at the supermarket uh, or at, you know, Whole Foods or at your farmer's market or, or, or wherever. So that's really the where it's at when we talk about contemporary paleo diets is that we should eat fresh fruits, vegetables, um, grass produced meats, if you can get them, um, seafood, um, nuts, certain healthful oils. And, and so that's really the idea is let's eat and let's mimic uh, the food groups uh, that these folks ate. But we, we certainly couldn't uh, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, eat paleo, uh, quote-unquote, in the way in which our uh, pre-agricultural ancestors did. 
And uh, one of the other questions we had, mate, was uh, someone just wanting to know about uh, intermittent fasting and also detoxing and, and how you see they fit into a paleo diet or a paleo lifestyle, I guess. Well, I, I think that's a good question, Brett. And um, there's no doubt that uh, hunter-gatherers did not eat three meals a day. Okay. <laughs> so we haven't published any scientific papers on that, but I, I've had some graduate students over the years, and we, we've got... We actually do have the data from the ethnographic atlas, so cool. Uh, we we just haven't gotten around to publishing it, but um, I can tell you that the the meal pattern hunter gatherers uh, was was varied, um, but all hunter gatherers didn't eat three meals a day, and uh, the the meal pattern tended to have two distinct uh, ways in which it was done uh, for the males in the group. Um, if they were to get up in the morning and they were to go out and do their hunt, um, then if there was food in camp in the morning, they might have a little bit of it. So they might have a little bit of breakfast, but there was no lunch and there was no dinner if they weren't successful. If they were successful, um, then they brought uh, the meat or the hunted food and if they didn't find any hunted food or meat, then they brought back gathered food. And so basically, collectively, if you look at a group of hunter-gatherers, it might have been 25 to 35 or more uh, in, a, in a group that went out and foraged and gathered food. And then the typical pattern was to bring everything back in the late afternoon and to have a meal if everything was successful. So uh, what it implies is that typically one of the patterns was to eat one meal a day. And so when you do this, what it does physiologically is it's kind of like intermittent fasting, is that uh, you sleep all night long, 8, 10 hours, whenever, you get up and there's either a little bit of something left over from that last night's meal or there's nothing. And then you go out and you forage all day and then you come back and you share whatever it is you've gotten. So, um, for males, particularly adult males, that was a, a pattern that we see for females, for young children and for grandparents that hung around the camp. Um, and work foraging. Now, I'm not saying because females and young children frequently went out together along with grandparents and foraged and gathered. And um, so they also frequently had that pattern of, of one a day. But if they were successful and there was food in camp, then they tend to munch all day long. So uh, we see that pattern as the secondary pattern uh, in hunter-gatherers. So intermittent fasting certainly compared to the way we eat in this day and age would have probably been a, a pattern that would have been, um, we would have seen it fairly often. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's a really cool perspective on that. Thank mm. you very much. <laughs> um, so, you know what, we're out of time, and to respect uh, you getting to bed on time, I just wanted to <laughs> ask you uh, one last question. Is just, um, you mentioned your next project or your current project, and I just wanted you maybe to expand on that for our listeners because it's really cool. Yeah, Stephanie and Brett as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the swan song of my career. I'm 63 years old, and, 
and I've been involved in this, uh, you know, from the very get-go in my, uh, as I mentioned, from my early to mid-30s, uh, we were doing this as lifeguards on the beach at Lake Tahoe, uh, not really even knowing what we were doing. Um, but uh, so I recognized when I was, you know, 20 years out in my career that this was a very therapeutic diet for people that had diseases of the metabolic syndrome or people that needed to lose weight. So metabolic syndrome of type 2 diabetes, overweight, uh, cardiovascular disease, um, dyslipidemia, in other words, blood chemistry that uh, is kind of off, high cholesterol and so forth. Uh, we, we'd realized early on that this was a, a therapeutic way of eating, and we knew this anecdotally uh, from many people around the world that uh, had done it. And fortunately, in the ensuing 20 years, we now have seven randomized controlled trials, which show that, indeed, if you are have a sign or symptom of the metabolic syndrome, um, everything gets better if you're overweight or obese. It gets better if you're an athlete, uh, as many CrossFit folks from around the world are. Um, you, you tend to increase muscle mass and improve performance. So beyond that, uh, one of the more fascinating uh, ideas that have come out of paleo is the notion that uh, it can help to improve autoimmune disease. And so I kind of suspected this early on when I was in my 40s and 50s is that we knew that uh, uh, gluten was a nasty thing for people with celiac disease. So if you ate gluten-containing grains, wheat, rye, barley, or oats, it tends to make everything worse. And there was some evidence then, 20, 25 years ago, that gluten was involved in a variety of autoimmune disease. And what's so cool right now is we're seeing that people that adopt paleo uh, that have signs and symptoms of autoimmunity, it seems to be therapeutic for them. And so with paleo, not only are we asking people <clears throat> to reduce or eliminate gluten-containing grains, we're asking them to eliminate uh, dairy products and legumes. And now we have a pretty good idea that uh, these food groups, along with uh, processed foods, high sugars, and so forth, also seem to exacerbate auto diseases of autoimmunity. So autoimmune diseases are kind of like what cancer and heart disease was 50 years ago. It's a black box that is poorly understood, yeah. poorly understood by scientists and physicians. Yet, the paleo community is um, kind of on the uh, envelope of the, the cutting edge, and, and it seems that uh, it's, it's working. And so as I, as I mentioned, as I approached the swan song of my career, I'm working with a couple of doctoral students and graduate students, and, and we've uh, developed a model of how we believe that uh, these elements in paleo diets can improve and help folks with autoimmune disease. Oh, that's just so cool. I'm so excited. And I can already think of, you know, a dozen people who will just love to hear all that information. Um, so, but look, Lauren, thank you so much for being on the show today. We're just honored to have you. And I'm really glad we got to share all of this stuff with our listeners today. Well, Stephanie and Brett, thank you so much for having me here. I'm I'm honored to be able to speak to a, a whole new generation, and I know that, that your generation will take paleo to the next level. So thank you very much. 
Thanks, Lauren. We're doing our best. (laughs) Until next week, everyone, check us out on Facebook, share your story, and help to grow the Paleo Tribe worldwide. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.